we were talking about how to really be a friend to oneself. And again, to take the whole perspective of spiritual friendship from a point of view of virtue and generosity rather than just what can I get? Because the what can I get sounds a bit like one of our cultural maxims. It's the economy of getting instead of the economy of kindness. And as you probably remember when we were reading the sutta, there's one beautiful section in which the Buddha describes how one with poor qualities, unwholesome qualities, does not know how to act, speak, think, conduct oneself in relationship, or even how to give. I would like to emphasize that one a little bit. Besides all the other qualities, how does a true human being, how does a true being give gifts as one who is true in the highest way of giving? And the Buddha says, here, a true man gives a gift carefully, not just any old gift. I remember once somebody gave me a gift of something that was obviously used, and it had body odor. And I tried my best to receive the gift in a good spirit, but my critical mind was a little excited. <laughs> how can how could, all right. And then in the end, it's just, well, this is the best this person could do. And be glad that they could give a gift. Maybe that's all they could give. But the Buddha is saying here, a true man or person gives a gift carefully. So you would try to make it clean. Or if you can't afford to buy a gift, but you have something beautiful to give, then give that. Gives it with his own hand. That's so beautiful. It's not like give it to somebody else to give for you. But if you can, give it on your own. It might require extra effort to do that. And maybe during COVID, you wouldn't have wanted to give it with your own hand. And we have to be wise. We have to use our wisdom. To give with your own hand means it's personal. And let's bring this in with the Noble Eightfold Path, this giving on our own, like with our own effort, not using somebody else's effort or not to park it on someone else for them to take responsibility for your gift. If it's possible, then give with your own hand. Now, if you're giving something from a distance, of course, you, you give it to the post office and they send it. Maybe you've wrapped it up beautifully and you you put stamps on it and you put it in the post. That is giving with your own hand. Giving while showing respect. So this is a very important feature of how we give. And we must remember that at the very foundation of this whole path is this quality of dana. Where does virtue begin? So don't think that this whole process of giving is, well, it's got nothing to do with meditation. Wait. 
It's got everything to do with meditation. So giving with respect, giving a valuable gift, something that you feel is is worthy. There's the kind of gift that you would give, which is something that you would like yourself. A more precious gift is something that you would give that you probably wouldn't be able to get for yourself, but to honor, to respect somebody who you have a lot of gratitude for. You want to really show honor and deep, deep respect. So that would be a royal form of giving. And giving it with the view that something will come of it. That means that it will be of benefit. Not just for the sake of giving. That is how a true being gives gifts. Now I wanted to bring this into how we give attention to the present moment. What is the highest gift that we can give? We can give, what is it? Well, we can give our life. But also, we can give our full attention. And when we're walking the Noble Eightfold Path, let us give our full attention. Because if we want to fulfill this quality of generosity, then the ability to give fully to the practice is to give our full attention. So that means we start with giving ourselves fully to the training that involves giving ourselves fully to the precepts. Whatever precepts we're training with, let us give our heart to that. Not just, well, I have to do this. Okay, I'll, I'll keep these precepts and you sign up for it. But occasionally you don't like a certain aspect of the precepts, and so you drop it. But the Buddha is giving us a package. We'll go back to the car example. If you are driving a car, you need your gears. You don't say, well, I only want gear one, two, and three. Forget about four and forget about reverse. No, I want all of them. And the same is true with this package of precepts. We don't choose. I like this. I don't like that. But we're almost trained in this modern civilization to get what we want. And that's where the insertion of I is so dangerous because we're not wise enough to know what is best to want. And the Buddha had the wisdom to know. So we should recognize that the gift that he gives us is this training. Whatever precepts we train in, take the whole package, take it fully with our whole heart and train in that so that we get the full result. And the full result of giving ourselves to the training with the precepts intact is that when we give our attention to the present moment and train in mindfulness and clear understanding with pure awareness, we're doing that with a mind that has been purified to the extent that we are fulfilling the precepts. And that's really important for having insight and growing in wisdom. Because then we are giving with our own attention. It's not somebody else's attention. It's our own mind. Paying attention fully 
to this moment, to this object, even if, if it's difficult, even if it's terrible, even if it's terrifying. So if we have unpleasant mind states, what is the way that we can best attend to them? Not by running away and not by being fearful. If we feel fear, then the real object to pay attention to is the fear. Our attention has to keep shifting to what is actually arising in its most raw form. So if we are not aware of our fear in dealing with present situations, then those situations will be very likely to overwhelm our attention. Because our attention has been occluded by a mental fabrication or hindrance, sankara, which is a formation around the object that does not allow us to see that it's impermanent, imperfect, and impersonal. It's actually empty. But we so believe in it that we've clung to it with fear. And fear is a way of clinging. It's not a way of letting go. It's a negative way of clinging. What would be a positive way of clinging to fear? Not, not clinging to it, but just holding it in attention long enough to know fearful. There's The mind is shirking. It's retreating. It's trying to be secluded. But real seclusion from fear comes from understanding its true characteristics and seeing the impermanence of it, seeing that it arises and ceases in the present moment, it's not solid. And the mind, not knowing the object for what it really is, becomes afraid of the fear that we think about. We become a slave to it. It becomes our master. Or it rules us and it twists us. It throws us off the road. It obstructs the path. But the noble understanding, the noble path, is formed and made from giving ourselves truly with our own mind's attention to present moment objects as they arise and cease, seeing their arising and seeing their sensation, so that we're bringing the Four Noble Truths to life in this moment. And the precepts play a great role in that because they've given the groundwork for us as purity of mind. A pure mind has much stronger, much more ability and agility to move with the different objects of our attention in a way that is skillful and not in a way that becomes burdened by hindrance, by fear, by anger, by greed, by delusion, by not knowing the object for what it really is. That's a, a very wonderful form of generosity. This is the kind of generosity that lays the groundwork for us to be content, to be more contented, more secluded, more renounced, because we're not wanting anything from the present moment except the truth. And a true being gives gives truly, and out of that true giving comes knowing the truth. And the truth is 
always understanding the Dhamma of the moment. And then wisdom arises. We have Satipanya. We're driving our chariot on the Noble Eightfold Path in a royal fashion. We are moving with Dhamma rather than with delusion. And our movement is sacred. So then out of that comes the whole path. Right view, right intention. We direct the mind well through right attention, right attention, right generosity. In this moment, mindful and aware. When we're not aware, not deeply aware, not acutely and specifically aware, moment by moment and mind moment by mind moment, I don't mean a moment of time, because these are timeless events that arise indiscriminately, but we hold them with great care and a deep, wise discernment so that we really see what's in front of us and not what we think. Oftentimes we think we're meditating, but we're actually just thinking about the breath. Or we're thinking about the sensations in the body. We're not actually embodied with them. This embodiment is an empowerment. And in fact, the more grounded we are, and the more attentive to the purity of mind and the purity of presence, being present and having that presence with the moment is what offers sanctity to our practice. Because we are really with the truth, and the truth is what frees us. So even if we have one moment of Truly seeing, that's one moment of freedom. And what happens with one moment of freedom? Even to see our, our own, not that we own it, but we, what, what is happening in this mind, this body, is a fearful moment. At least we know the fear, and we know this is not who I am. This is not me, not mine, not myself. That's a moment of freedom. So one free moment begets the next. Out of that free moment comes the path, and another free moment is possible. But if we're chained to wanting, to hating, to running away, to freezing, I mean feeling frozen because of our trauma or conditioning, we want freedom from that. But in giving, truly, we receive the bounty of this Dhamma which is to be liberated from the enslavement to the deluded mind and the fearful mind and the greedy mind and the clinging mind. How long, how many more lifetimes of clinging are we headed for? So it's urgent. The Buddha talks about the Samvega, very, very important. But to do this with our own mind, with respect, with care, with devotion, with determination, we're not giving up. Where else, what else to do in this life? What is this life for except 
to find freedom from the enslavement that most people find themselves in. And then when they get old, they talk about the past, which is dead. Close to death and yet even closer because the mind has no life in it. But here and now, we know how to wake up. Carl Jung, bless his heart, said, those who look to the world are dead. It's like death. And those who look within, within the mind, awaken. So we need to be clear what the project is. It's to wake up, not to be asleep. And you could say, well, I know that. But no, the I doesn't know anything. The I is ignorant. We actually are well off when we come to the present moment empty. Empty-handed. Barefoot. Do you know, in some religious orders, the monastics go barefoot when they pray or they do their religious rites. They, they do it barefoot as a sign of humility. And we need that. This is not an egoic exercise to be better than or worse than or as good as. It's non-egoic. It's a, a posture of humility. And we do this with our, our bare hands, with our own effort, with our own mind, with our highest effort to know the highest truth is here and now. It's not in the future. The past is dead. We can remember as much as we want. Information is useful. It's convenient. Medically, it's wonderful. Nutritionally, great. Our vehicle is strengthened. But it doesn't free us. You could have the best diet in the world. It doesn't free the mind. But what is the best diet for the mind? What is nutritious for this heart? This is what we're devoted to in our work. And sometimes we suffer, of course. The Buddha, yeah, he said it. Truth of suffering. If we don't suffer, something's wrong. It's not the suffering that's wrong. It's our attitude towards it. It's the way we receive it, the way we go towards it or run away from it. But we can't run away from our suffering. We have to understand it. We have to stand under it and know it for what, what it really is and see it as anicca, dukkha, anatta. It's empty. The more that we know reality, the reality of this presence, the more we see that it's, it's really empty. And then there's a joy that comes from that. It's the kind of joy that the Buddha knew would give the mind the energy for enlightenment the energy for Nibbana. If our mind is always inclined towards Nibbana, then we are in the presence of Nibbana. When we come empty to the present moment, 
without bubbling full of sankaras, but the mind is empty and silent, that silence brings us closer and closer to Nibbana. It isn't something in the future. There is no future. It's this present moment. This is the potential that we have. And we're lighting the light this minute in each moment that we pay attention and give attention in the right way. In the Zen tradition, there's a, a sweet story. The disciple comes to the master, and the disciple's name is Loshan. He comes before Master Yantu, and he asks, when arising and ceasing go on unceasingly, what then? And Master Yantu shouted, Whose arising and ceasing is it? And Loshan, at that moment, awakens. What does he awaken to? There's no self there. The whole thing is empty. The arising and the ceasing is empty. There's no one there. No one to get enlightened. But then conventionally, we speak about this one, this true one. It's just a collection of aggregates. It's a vehicle. It's our satipanya vehicle. And we use it for the purpose of being in the presence of Nibbana. For inclining the mind towards that understanding of this emptiness of any self where truth abides and where we can taste it with a joy that is incomparable and indestructible. No one can steal it from us. They can take everything, but no one can take away that joy. And you can't give it to anyone except through your own practice and your own presence. Then that is the gift we give to the world if we can give it. But first, we must understand the gift that we have to give. It's, it's beyond words. It's so sacred. We all have that potential. And we're here for that. And when we are in Sangha and we share that together, we become stronger than we could ever imagine. What a strength. What a light. Instead of burning up with delusion, we light the flame of wisdom in the mind and then it's radiant it's a radiance that permeates throughout the world in the Dhammapada there's a beautiful saying about the fragrance of sandalwood 
which is the most lovely fragrance. But the fragrance of wisdom permeates throughout the world, illumined. It's not a worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is all well and good. Notice how the world worships. I think right now the worship is more a worship of information, knowledge, but it's not necessarily wisdom. It's not, not necessarily wise. You can be very scholarly and academic and spend your life making bombs. What, what good is that? What have we done? Making bombs, bullets, weapons. For what? But to make peace, an indestructible peace, let's keep trying we have a big job to do but we can do it and it happens here and now in one breath one breath at a time it might seem like not very much but it's huge it's enormous more valuable than we can ever describe And that's why we need the virtue to go with that. This is so valuable. Let us not underestimate the level of virtue to develop so that we can carry that valuable gift. Purity of mind, purity of thought, purity of speech, and purity of action, of being of caring, of giving, of developing the parami. So we live simply. Giving is giving up, being selfless. What can we do for someone else? Not why do I feel so not well today, but how can I help someone? And immediately we stop thinking about our own trouble or problem. What is the face of a hero, of heroic action? Those beings that go towards danger because they're going to help someone. Saving a child from a fire at the risk of death. But what a noble mind. A noble mind. 